0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. This week we have a guest on the show, economics and finance writer Frances Coppola. She's the author of a book Quantitative Easing for the People, which argues that central banks and governments should work in concert to ensure that their response to financial crises really helps the economy and the entire economy rather than just inflating asset prices as we've seen conventional quantitative easing do. In the first part of our wide-ranging discussion, we demystify the economy and debunk some common misconceptions by asking some basic questions. What's a central bank and what is its role in the economy? What is quantitative easing and what was it intended to do? It was a really fascinating discussion and it does amaze me how much economics is almost taken for granted and not explained as par for the course in our education when these ideas and principles affect our lives so much. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so, Francis, first off, thanks very much for coming on the show to talk about your book, Quantitative Easing for the People and the General Economic Mess that we find ourselves in at the moment. I want to start by asking about your background. So how did you first become involved in finance and thinking about economics more generally? And what's your experience been uh, blogging via Coppola Comment in the last few years?
1: Well, I started in banks. Um, I fell into banking as a way of earning money um, after my uh, after. doing music as a, as a at university um, and I went and worked for an, a, several banks in um, ITE systems and then I crossed the boundary into the business and worked a lot in finance and in middle office um, and in what we call operations which is where they do payments and things like that so I got a very broad exposure to how things work what banks actually do um, and it's not what people think, and I was and I was quite surprised after the financial crisis how little people knew about what banks actually do, and say, including a good many bankers, which was very worrying indeed. So, yeah. I I left banking in two thousand and two because you know singing wouldn't let me go, and and I wanted to be a decent mum to my kids as well, and I spent a decade being a singer and a teacher, and a mum. And then after the financial crisis, there was so much rubbish being talked about banks. I thought, I've got to say something. It doesn't work like this. And so I started writing about banks and finance and about economics, because I, I, you can't really do serious discussion about banking after a financial crisis without also discussing macroeconomics, um, which I had studied in my second degree um, in my MBA at SoCas Business School. Um, and that's when I started Coppola Comments. Um, and so originally Coppola comment was a space for me to just write about the things that were annoying me at the time. Um, as time's gone on, it's developed into um, really a finance and economics blog.
0: One thing that I think you've, you've raised this point so validly already is that from the outside, it's kind of amazing that we don't learn more about economics. There's not more economics education that is compulsory or even that easy to find about. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a physicist. Uh, I I'm fairly numerate, I pay a lot of attention to the news, and there are still big swaths of economics that I don't feel like I understand at all. But then there's this this Keynes quote about the ideas of economists and political philosophers, whether they're right or wrong, essentially run the world. And I feel that that is, that is so true, and it, it leads to a disenfranchisement i think amongst ordinary people who see these things going on and don't necessarily understand the full context and i mean our muddled perceptions about the economy can lead to all sorts of different incorrect ideas about how things really function so for example mm-hmm. in the uk we had a government that came in in 2010 and imposed austerity and cuts and the analogy that was used to justify that is the government as having finances like a household's finances where you can't go over budget and you have to pay down debts uh, you know th- as soon as you can essentially and that has been used to justify cuts to government spending in the uk it's also a bit of a boogeyman in the us where you know usually whichever party is opposing the government's proposed spending increase is the one that starts uh, railing about the deficit and saying that you know we can't live beyond our means and so on but s- similarly when we talk about qe which we will in a little bit quantitative easing it's easy for this to be misrepresented as uh, money being printed that's going straight to CEOs of corporations or taxpayer money is somehow being used to bail out corporations. So th- given all of this, and this is a very broad question, but what are the sort of misconceptions about the general economy that are that are widespread or, or being used politically that, that you would like to correct?
1: I think people are very open to um, simple explanations that sound convincing that people can envisaged they can hang on to it, means something to them in terms of their own lives. But the reality at the aggregate level and at the governmental level is actually very different. So this argument, for example, that government households finances are like a household. Um, and yet, when we talk about paying down debt as quickly as possible, that's actually not what households do. We all, you know, households take out mortgages over 25 years, but somehow it's not okay for a government to borrow over 25 years. Um, So actually the household analogy, if we actually took it as it really is, as households actually live, isn't terrible. So if you are a household that's, that's not earning enough, you might go and look for a job that pays you more. So you boost your income. You might take on a second job to boost your income. Households do this. And this is actually kind of what governments do as well. There are two ways of increasing nationally, li- of, of paying down your deficit. One is to um, cut your spending, but another is to increase your income. And so after the financial crisis, there was a huge debate over how we should go around getting rid of this 10% or so deficit um, in relation to what we call GDP at the time, which is national income. Um, and... All the discussions seem to centre around, we've got to cut, 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 cut to get it down, we've got to to reduce our spending. Um, And the voices saying, actually what we need to do is to increase our income, kind of got a bit lost. Um, And I think this was unfortunate because as it panned out, um, the cuts to spending, when a government cuts spending, very often it can cut things that can actually help to increase income. So, for example, after the financial crisis, after the in the early years of the coalition government, they cut government investment very considerably. And now, government investment kickstarts economic growth. It can help businesses to thrive. It can help people to find better better jobs. Um, and so, we can actually end up poorer because we're cutting government spending. Um, it's a false economy. Um, but these kind of messages never quite got through. We actually did not discuss even a government like a household or like a corporation. We discussed it like something that doesn't actually exist at all. Um, we discussed it in terms of slogans, living within our means, tightening our belts, paying down our credit cards. It wasn't real. It was ideological. And I think sometimes you have to start talking about how things really are to try and counter the ide- ideology that is driving the debate
0: and I think this is this is what's so um, strange to me about the fact that uh, so I, I want to give you an example. I, there is a general um, the way as I understand it there there are two large schools in economics, and you can sort of talk about them specifically and how they would respond to a crisis. so you have your Keynesians who say that you need uh, government borrowing and increasing aggregate demand by uh, spending in sort of big infrastructure type projects um, when you're in the midst of a recession. And then there are um, sort of, I guess you would call them the Austrian school, who would say (laughs) that you need the recession to happen um, to rebalance the economy. And one thing that I find is interesting is actually, if you look at uh, popular ways of learning about the economy, so I'm talking about YouTube, I'm talking about bloggers and podcasts and so on, the Austrian school seems to be so much more the dominant force in these things. Now, I, I know from your blog that you don't really identify as being part of either of these particular movements, and perhaps I'm sort of oversimplifying the ways in which people talk about the economy. So so first off, do you think that that's fair and secondly, if those are the schools of debate, where are the sort of flaws in their thinking about how the economy works?
1: I don't see it quite like that. I think what happened was okay. we, had, we had a we had a mainstream um, economics movement over the last 40 years or so, which is <clears throat> often sort of broadly termed neoliberal um, or near, and you'll sometimes see it called neo-Keynesian as well, which confuses things considerably um, and then since the financial crisis we've we've had the emergence of a range of alternative schools one of which is actually the austrian school but there are others the heterodox community generally I mean, modern monetary theory is another one um that have emerged broadly since the financial crisis and challenged that mainstream neoclassical dominant paradigm um that was roughly born um, really, in about around about the 1970s, when the near, when the Keynesian um, school, which had dominated since World War II, really um, failed to be able to deal with the high inflation and poor growth of that time, um, the we we shifted to a different paradigm. that was roughly roughly based upon free markets and um, monetarism. We might say now even that is being challenged and i think we're shifting to another paradigm and we don't yet know what that is it's emergent so it'll be very interesting to see what becomes mainstream economics in the next 40 years
0: so 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 we talked about this then that the sort of mainstream economics at the moment is this neoliberalism uh, so to speak i mean how how would you describe that because you've said that it's about um the power of the free markets which sort of implies to me that government intervention in these things is quite small, but um, but how how would you sort of describe the the tenets of the economics that we have at the moment? That's maybe going to be cast in the waste by the wayside in the next few years.
1: Um, it's it is broadly about that. It's about saying that it is really all about markets. It's all about um, that. It's about um, getting about the way and letting things letting things happen in a way that um, and and government's role within that should be small. Um, and markets should be allowed to operate um, and um and I think underpinning that a, a kind of philosophical argument that says that all humans are entirely rational, and that every decision they ever make is entirely rational, and that therefore markets are rational and complete. Um, and I think now we're saying, well, actually, that's not true. And it became apparent first in finance with financial crisis when it was very evident that there was a lot of stuff going on in finance. It was anything but rational, and that the and that financial markets were anything but complete and were not broadly in equilibrium all the time. They were very far from equilibrium a lot of the time, and they were prone to panics and herding behavior and all manner of of uh, pretty irrational, things like that, which is kind of harking back really to Keynes, um, who rather ruefully after remarked that uh, the markets can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Um, After he lost rather a lot of money in the Wall Street crash. Um, Sometimes we need to remember things of the past and in in a mainstream paradigm, things like that, the irrational behaviour of markets becomes lost in a, in a, in what amounted to a belief that everybody would be entirely rational all of the time or more correctly that although individual decisions may be rational it may be totally rational for you as an individual to to um, dump all your um, stock market, your holdings in one particular stock or something like that when everybody does it what you end up with is a panic So it may be totally rational for you as an individual to take all of your savings out of Northern Rock. But when everybody tries to do it all at the same time, you get long queues outside the bank and the bank goes bust. Yeah, so in aggregates... people aggregate in,
0: rational decisions can still uh, look irrational
1: look irrational and i mean we see this actually perhaps more evidently not in places like finance where you could say well rationally actually the entire crowd was being rational and taking its savings out of northern rock um but in for example the behavior of crowds you no, know, that individually people within that crowd are behaving in a way that is rational to them but the crowd itself looks like it's out of control and gone mad. We do see a lot of that type of herding behaviour in in financial markets. And, of course, one of the things that's happened in the last 40 years during the, the neoliberal near, near, near paradigm, really, has been the financial markets have become extremely dominant. They've become like the lifeblood, the driving force behind the economy. And so you could say that a lot of things that go on in the economy itself are driven by this kind of sort of irrational herding behaviour.
0: So so when we talk about irrationality in the financial markets I mean I think it's very interesting so you have this sort of Keynesian idea that everything is about the bull and the bear and the value of the the sort of the strength of the economy and the strength of the markets is all down to sentiment and not actually fundamentals at all not actually what is going on in what what we would ordinarily consider the real economy and in some ways it seems to me like this is this is evidence now in the middle of the coronavirus crisis where we had in March the market's crashed and sold off by 20 25% in total and then they've immediately um well many of the markets have almost rebounded to where they were before the crash despite the fact that what's actually happened in the real economy in that time is that governments have spent very large amounts of money on stimulating the economy and lots and lots of people are unemployed and more people will become unemployed and you know various businesses have made losses so it it almost seems like the the markets are detached from what we consider to be the real economy i I mean is that a failure of of rationality or is that something else
1: um
0: it It does appear irrational I mean actually the market crash in in March
1: didn't look irrational at all um <laughs>
0: No, the world was ending at the time.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, I looked to this and say, how can anybody consider a panic under these circumstances irrational? It's like the massive crash that there was in nineteen fourteen, just before the outbreak of World War II, World War One, and and there was this enormous financial crisis which never gets talked about because actually it was just everybody ra- running for the hills, and you could see why they were really. So it, it, the market crash in in March was not irrational in that sense. It wasn't. Um, you know, some kind of ridiculous stampede caused by the shadow of the wolf in the woods. There really was a wolf, and the herd really mm-hmm. did run away from it. Um, I think what has happened since is there's a degree of confidence has been restored, and and I think there's two parts to that. Um, I mean, markets are all about confidence. Um, you know, they, they will act, investors will act in a in a in a rational and stable manner if they feel confident. Um, if they get spooked, they run. Um, You know, they're like cattle, really. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So what's happened is that, you know, the farmers come in and give them a whole load of feed and they've all clustered around the feed um, and and the sheepdogs around frightening off the wolf. um, And so they've got a degree of confidence back. And that's why markets are up, is that they're going, Okay, so the world isn't coming to an end. Um, central banks have our backs. Um, it isn't going to be a financial crisis. Yeah, there's going to be a big economic crash, but actually when there's a big economic crash, there are opportunities
0: for investors.
1: So if we hang on in here, we'll make some money. That's what's going
0: on. It's very interesting. And one one final thing I want to talk about in terms of this uh, financial uh, rationality and irrationality on the markets. We, we talked a little bit, and we're going to talk now about the 2008-2009 financial crisis, and th- this this idea that everyone is making rational decisions on investments mm. the, the 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 key defining uh, the the proximate cause of the financial crisis was that as I understand it you had lots of subprime mortgages which weren't necessarily good loans that had been repackaged and financialized into instruments collateralized debt obligations and these were sold to various different banks in various different packages and what actually happened was you have this idea of the of the homo economicus right who's always making rational decisions about what to purchase and what not to purchase and how to uh, behave in a transaction to to maximize their own benefit but in but that, that that requires them to have good information about what it is that they're buying and in that particular case part of the issue was that the collateralized debts that people were buying they had no idea what was really in them and to what extent some of the the loans were going to go bad and so in terms of rationality and irrationality, I mean, could you say that the, the it was this information, this lack of perfect information um, about what was going on and the lack of perfect information that people have when they're considering uncertainty, such as the uncertainty surrounding this crisis or the uncertainty then surrounding whether a bank could uh, make good on its loans to you or not, or whether your assets were worth anything or not, that causes people to End up being driven by sentiment rather than a sort of cold rational decision making process
1: yes absolutely in fact that is a limitation on on what's known as the efficient markets theory which basically says that in in perfect in when everybody has access to the same information they will all make uh, the decisions they make will all be be um rational um when we have information asymmetry, where you know some people have more information than others, and you get distortions creeping in, basically there there, there are there are um, hustlers and suckers, because the people who have less information can be taken for fools, and when that happens to the whole market, when you've got a small, relatively small number of players taking the rest of the market for fools, you end up with something like two thousand and eight. So you might ask yourself, and I've asked myself this a number of times, it's always been, why did they buy? If they didn't know anything about these things, they didn't do the due, due diligence to find out what was underpin, underpinned them. In some, cases, they, in some cases, they even knew that what underpinned them was, was toxic waste, and they still bought them. And you have to ask yourself why. And there are a number of reasons for this. Um, there is the uh, the beauty contest effect, where you know the value of something is you know how much you think something is worth is driven by how much um, you think somebody else thinks it's worth. if you see what I mean, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, yes
0: yeah. no no I think so I mean particularly it's if you don't <laughs> think that it bears any relation it's just about what people are willing to pay for it right
1: yeah it's the Keynesian beauty contest I mean Keynes with this way you know a way of, of words uh, with words and images described it as um, a beauty contest in which your decision about which which girl to you think it, it, to vote for is not the one that you think is most beautiful but the one that you think everybody else thinks is most beautiful and <laughs> that's how markets work markets work so, um, um, and so with subprime, everybody else thought subprime, thought um, CDOs and, and CDSs and things um, were were beautiful, and so um, people voted for them, even if they even if they didn't necessarily think they were beautiful. If you see what I mean, because they were following the herd. That's the point, um, you know. And there is this fear of missing out thing, where if you don't follow the herd, you're going to miss out on the really nice grass. Um, And there's also the, I know this is all going to end in tears, but if I get in quick, because I'm cleverer than anybody else, I can get out before it all crashes. And there's a lot of that as well. There's a lot of that kind of sort of believing you're you're better than than everybody else. And we're all guilty of that. I mean, we all think we're better drivers than we actually are. You know, this kind of thing about we all think, everybody thinks that their driving is better than average. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is obviously... Or that
0: they're more intelligent than average, maybe.
1: Exactly. Everybody thinks they're more intelligent. And the driving thing has actually been tried out. In surveys, people always... The majority of people think their driving is better than average. I think it's hilarious.
0: Well, I I never pass my test, so I'm one of those people who doesn't think that. (laughs) (laughs) I think my driving is probably objectively slightly worse than average. (laughs) (laughs)
1: That's 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 a little bit like Jane Austen actually. I think it was Lady Catherine de um who said, "I would have been I would have been excellent when talking about playing the piano. I would have been an excellent excellent player if I had ever learned."
0: <laughs> oh no, don't get me wrong. If I had finished my <laughs> if I had finished my exam, I can guarantee you that I'd be far more sensible than all these idiots on the road at the moment.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, as long as you don't you don't drive a BMW or an Audi.
0: About people wanting to get in and get out as quickly as they possibly can, because one of the things that I've been watching since this coronavirus crisis started is pretty much any stock that is associated with a vaccine is, they're almost effectively these pump and dump schemes at the moment where people will float rumours in the news about such and such a stock is associated with a treatment or, or a drug, and then everyone buys it and then everyone sells it because they're all hoping to be the people who buy in at the peak of inflated expectations and sell before... The price crashes and there's there's a lot of people who are just trying to work markets on the theory of a greater fool you know that a greater fool is going to be a counterparty to their trade and and they will make money um, by outwitting uh, the other people who are in the market at the moment and the idea that this is sort of the the sentiment that that plays at the moment that people don't even necessarily uh, buy things based on the expected underlying value but purely because they expect to be able to Um, con someone else into buying it at a different
1: Uh, nominal price Yeah, I mean actually markets do work like that to some extent Um, it's sad we like to think that everybody is making buying decisions based upon what they think is the underlying value and there are people who do Um, but there are also these kind of momentum traders um, who are simply riding the wave Um, and there are also people who are actively playing the market talking it up Um, because they want to profit from the rise. Actually, um, there are regulations in place to stop this kind of thing and and, um, they work to some extent. And Actually, if you want to see what a completely unregulated financial market looks like, you actually need to look at cryptocurrency where this kind of thing happens all the time and there's really no value at all that isn't caused by somebody talking it up in order to get other people to, to buy in.
0: Yes, well I I you see I've been so I've been a technology journalist in the past like a freelance technology journalist and I was one of the people mm-hmm. who was very much saying what actually is the point of all of these cryptocurrencies what can the blockchain yeah. do what can bitcoin do other than be an extremely inefficient way of making payments from person to person that uses a hell of a lot of energy and a hell of a lot of computing power per transaction and that actually is really only uh purpose is if you do want to do something criminal where you can be completely anonymous in it and yet the value of these things is, is divorced from their real value and is, is I mean, particularly when it comes to lots of the smaller cryptocurrencies, which are, as you say, just these pump and dump schemes that people are putting money into and talking up and then talking down in the hope that uh, they'll be able to sell them on to a greater full. But, uh, you know, they, it seems it, it's almost a more cynical version of the dot com bubble, because I don't even know whether there's going to be lasting uses of, of blockchain mm-hmm. or Bitcoin beyond just as instruments of financial speculation
1: i don't know what your perspective
0: is on on cryptocurrencies
1: i'm i'm still trying to to believe that there is some kind some kind of lasting value there but i'm as time goes on i'm seeing less and less evidence of it which is quite sad really isn't it you know you know it started after the financial crisis i think sort of traumatically after the financial crisis. There was a massive breakdown of trust in the financial system at that time. So it's not surprising that people were trying to create an alternative to it. And it wasn't the only movement at that time. that was trying to create an alternative to the present financial system. We also had moves towards full reserve banking and um, all sorts of things at the time. And, and um, But as as time's gone on, and rather than trying to create an alternative to the financial system, they seem to have tied themselves to it with ropes of steel, Called stablecoins, um, and are now and and it's become simply a vehicle for um, speculation, as you say. I, I, I think they've sold their soul, really.
0: Yes, it is. It is interesting, and I think actually QE probably did play some part in this. So, so we're going to we're going to get get onto the the meat of of, of your book and, and the topic at hand today. Now, um, sorry everyone for the interesting <laughs> digressions that we got into at the start. Um, so, I, ju- I just wanted to ask a very basic question. What is a central bank and what role do they play in the economy?
1: Well, it's very interesting about central banks and the role they play, because they don't play the role now that they did when they were first created. Um, you know, central banks go back a long time. The Bank of England was founded in 1684 or something like that. Um, but they, most of them were originally founded to finance government, um, particularly to finance wars. Um And even well into the 20th century, financing government one way or another um, was the primary purpose of central banks, really, um, being the government's bank, um, issuing the currency, obviously, um, and managing the value of the currency. Um, That's the bit that we still have, but we do it in a different way now, because for most of the period in which central banks have been operating, um, central banks have managed the external value of the currency. So they've managed exchange rates um, and they've managed, and when we've been on a gold standard, um, they've managed gold flows. Um, Since 1971, um, we've not had a gold standard and increasingly we've been dropping um, managed exchange rates. Um, I think um sort of free floats really have been established in, in among developed countries pretty much since the early 1990s And that's around the time that as part of the neoliberal and monetarist revolution, um the value of a um of a, of an independent central bank that was disconnected from government and was not responsible for financing it um became a, a matter of of economic face. So um your central bank should not be financing your government because it could be end up financing government um, to a ridiculous extent and then you ended up with Weimar and wheelbarrows and confetti money. Um, so what you should have is a central bank that is independent of government. Government should finance itself in the markets and be subject to the discipline of the markets so that it can't um, spend so much that it debases the currency and that the central bank should be responsible for managing the value of that currency but increasingly not by managing its external value but by managing its internal value by which i mean the rate of inflation now inflation needs a little bit of explanation because if you talk to the austrian school or if you talk to bitcoiners as we were just talking about bitcoin they take inflation to be mean the actual amount of currency in circulation so it, the the rate of growth of actual currency in circulation so if you increase your money supply by 10% you've got a 10% inflation rate but the economic the general economic definition of inflation is not that the general economic definition of inflation and the measure that central banks use to determine the inflation level and and to determine the level they should be targeting, what they should be targeting, is actually what is actually rising the general price level. So if your gen, if your consumer prices are in general rising at two percent per year, then you have two percent inflation and there's there's whole books written on how this works and the different measures that they use and the different way they construct it and how they measure it and the problems with that and all the rest of it but i think just drawing the distinction between those two definitions of inflation is quite important because when you talk to like i said hard money types they do mean something different by inflation
0: there is a perception that inflation is purely about how much currency you have. And this is the classic idea that when you print money, you devalue the rest of the money and so on. Yeah. And then your uh, the, perhaps the more accurate perception of what inflation is, is you take, a, for example, a, a basket of goods that people might buy, and that's the consumer price index. And then it's about the purchasing power of your dollar or your pound to actually obtain physical assets. Is that a fair
1: Yeah, Yeah, uh, to, to, to obtain... Summary? Yeah, to obtain the goods in the goods in that basket, um, it, we don't actually currently generally include um, uh, investment assets in that because the the problem with including investment assets, and that includes people, is that actually. Whereas, generally speaking, people regard um, price rises in consumer goods as not a terribly good thing, really. They are rather keen on asset price rises. So a central bank trying to keep their asset price, their property from rising by only 2% a year kind of tends to get outrage headlines in the Daily Mail. Um, it, it is an open question whether asset price inflation should, in fact, be included. And I know the, the Office of National Statistics um, here in the UK um, has been starting to include housing costs, but not asset the actual rise in house prices and that's a, a, a kind of an interesting distinction um yeah but housing costs are sort of broadly you could you can roughly interpret as being it's kind of including rentals but not house prices
0: so it's a little bit like the cost of someone to live in the economy at the moment how much is that going up versus the value of say their investment their assets their house their their stocks and so on
1: Absolutely. And so, I mean, with with property, for example, we have a thing called imputed rentals, which is the amount that the householder would have to pay if they were paying rent for their own house. And that's not the same as their mortgage. Um, Mm -hmm. It is included in the measure of of housing costs. But at the moment, um, certainly the Bank of England isn't using the version of CPI that includes housing costs. The CPIH isn't using that as its preferred measure of inflation. It's actually using... um, I think uh, actually using CPI itself, which, as I said, is the, is the basket of goods. And it's using mm-hmm. the core version of that, which excludes some types of goods that are highly volatile.
0: So yes. returning again to this question of central banks, I just want to sort of paint a picture and you can tell me how, how wrong it is. Um, so we had pre-1970s and particularly very early on, the central bank had all of the gold issued the currency in terms of printing the money, as, as, as the Royal Mint would do, um, and the, backed the currency against the gold reserves that it had. Now we've all shifted away from the gold standard. It, it gets its value more from what people think it's worth, as opposed to any physical backing. Um, and the central bank's role is in setting interest rates and in, uh, again, creating money, but but other banks also create money. Is this correct?
1: Yes, that's right. And if I just unpack that a bit, I think this is really important. You know, the currency as we have it now um, is not backed by any physical commodity. There's no gold or silver or, or asset of any kind backing the currency at the moment. What it's backed by is actually the future productive capacity of the economy um you could say it's a, it's you could say it represents um future tax receipts that's one way of looking at it and, and that plays to the chartalist idea that that the value of the currency is given by the government's ability to tax um mm-hmm. you no know, uh, but it's definitely the value of your currency is driven by is determined by the future productive capacity of your economy um and so um in a way your inflation rate if if you're Um, These days, when you're sort of judging inflation, central banks do it on what they call expectations rather than on current inflation. They look ahead and say, what do people expect inflation to be in five years' time? And if if the expectations are that inflation is going to be in double digits in five years' time, then in a way it's saying that the productive capacity of the economy is not enough. To preserve the value of the currency, you've got too much currency in relation to the future capability of your your economy. Um, you know, so maybe you need to do something to improve your productive capacity, um, or maybe you need to reduce the amount of currency, the amount of money you have sloshing around. Um, it, it, that's that's roughly um, how how that works, um, and and it can be quite hard for people to get their heads around this. And again, it's one of these. Um, areas where it's very easy to cling on to a simple idea you can understand a currency that is backed by something you can kick like gold yes (laughs) but the idea that it's backed by this kind of ephemeral notion of what we what what the future what the people of who of the economy can produce over the next how many however many years you know including people who are who, who who are currently children and more, aren't even born yet, it's is actually that, that much, di- much more difficult to get your head round? But there's actually mm-hmm. how fiat currencies work. Um, so
0: a fiat currency is almost like the stock value of UK PLC. And when people lose confidence in the company's future profitability, so to speak, that's when the value of the currency goes down, oh, as we saw after the Brexit referendum, for example.
1: I think it's an absolutely brilliant analogy. In fact, you know when I talk about... Um, you no. Know, Fiat currency notes and coins. Um, I, I often say it, it's not a debt. It's not an IOU. We don't. It, it's not redeemable as anything other than itself. You go, you take your ten pound note, and you go to the Bank of England. And they will give you a ten pound note, or, or or they'll give you ten pound coins. They won't give you any asset. And they can't give you anything else. It's redeemable only as, only as itself. But it is, in a way, a kind of share in the future of the of the country. Um, So in that way, I think um, money, um, currency in this way, is often better regarded as sort of like like a type of of share, like a type of stock investment, if you like, rather than as as any kind of debt.
0: And just as a a, um, a company can issue new shares to uh, sell them off and raise capital that it needs for itself, I suppose a company can, uh, sorry, a, a country can issue new shares in the sense of making more money, printing more money. Is, th- is that a fair analogy or not? Yeah. Okay. It's
1: not a bad again. It's not a bad analogy. So, if a if a a a, a um, corporation did a rights issue, which means it would be inviting its existing shareholders, issuing new shares and inviting its existing shareholders to buy them, um, then what happens is the share price falls because obviously those existing shareholders will have more shares for the same company mm-hmm. so they've been what we call diluted but if the company then uses that money to invest for the future then the future growth of that company could be much more um than it would be without the rights issue and so actually you can find your share price sort of falls initially and then climbs
0: <laughs> and that because that... people are more confident in the company now that it has more cash on its books
1: absolutely and so if you are issuing more money um, and you're going to use that money to invest in the supply, in the uh, productive capacity of your economy, then you are uh, potentially um, actually making your currency in the future more valuable, not less.
0: So let's talk about the meat of this then. Let's talk about quantitative easing. So financial crisis comes along 2008-2009. Central banks embark on this big programme of quantitative easing. Now, it, it's very difficult to get a proper perception of what this is. For example, I remember the Bank of England's website used to have a lovely page where they said, lots of people think that quantitative easing is printing money. It's not. Instead, new money is created digitally, which to me, when I read that, I just thought, well, what's the difference? You know, <laughs> I'm not concerned about physical money because not all money is physical money. It's all in bank accounts and so on. So quantitative easing, central banks, what is it and why did they do it? <laughs> quantitative easing is an asset swap.
1: And we haven't talked a great deal about government debt yet. Um, mm-hmm. And that it's really important we do, because quantitative easing, is, it, there's two sides of this. One is the new money and the other is the government debt, because most quantitative easing involves purchases, the central bank buying the debt of its own government. Um, they sometimes buy other things. Um, so, for example, um, Federal Reserve also buys what it calls agency MBS, which is the which is um, the mortgage-backed securities issued by the government-sponsored enterprises Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Um, but that's regarded as equivalent to government debt. Really, it has a federal mm-hmm. guarantee and so forth. And more recently, um, central banks have been buying some corporate debt. So, the Bank of England um,
0: bought some corporate debts. Um so can I just really briefly interject here and say, so when we say that the, the Bank of England is buying this debt, it, it buys debt from governments and corporations in the form of bonds. And the bond is like an asset. And when you have the bond, the bond says, OK, we promise to pay you a certain percentage uh, extra on top of the value of this bond. And that percentage will be set by various different things. And that's an asset that the central bank holds. So the central bank is effectively the owner of In in the case of QE1 and and later rounds of QE, billions and billions of pounds worth of the government's debt and some corporate debt as well, which it holds as these assets as bonds. And then uh, part of the tax revenue that we pay, for example, goes to paying down the interest on these loans, which is the sort of maturity of the bond. Is, Is that right?
1: That's right, except that the Bank of England actually remits that interest back to the Treasury. So it's it doesn't actually receive, it doesn't actually profit from its holdings. Okay. Um, the, and there's a, deal, there's a deal between the government and the Treasury whereby the central bank doesn't profit from its holdings, but it doesn't take losses either. So if the bonds actually lose value, then the uh, Treasury will reimburse it. But that actually hasn't happened. Um, since QE, they they actually put that in place just in case it happened because they honestly thought that that it, it might happen. But what's actually happened, of course, is is that government debt has, has gone up hugely in value since the financial crisis overall. And so, generally speaking, um, the central bank has been making the central banks been making profits on their holdings. Um, but yeah, that that's how it works. So um, we can regard government debt as being like a future promise of money. Um, so if a government is issuing a bond to its own citizens, then it's then in return for money contributed by those citizens. So um, if I, as a private citizen, buy, some, buy a, a, a government bond worth, say, some notion amount of money like £10,000, I would have to pay whatever the market value is, which is probably um, maybe a bit less than £10,000, right? Um, the government will have that money. But then in the future, I've got a, a right to have that money back. So in a way, I have relinquished money in the present um, and I have, will get it back in the future. And in the meantime, the government has received money in the present, which will return in the future. That's just how lending works generally. But when the government does mm-hmm. it, um, the money is actually uh, created and destroyed when the government does it, actually. Um so when the central bank buys a bond, and it does so on the second secondary market, it's not buying new issues of bonds. It's not the government issuing bonds that the government that the central bank immediately buys. It's actually buying them from um, from investors. Um, okay. The the central bank holds that bond and it pays for it with money that it has created. Whereas if I buy a bond, I'm buying it with money that I have earned or (laughs) something. Um, When the central bank does that, it buys the bond with money that it has created. And so it's putting new money into the economy. Now, the way it does that, um, it rather depends who it's bought the bond from. If it's bought the bond from a bank, um, then the new money that it created goes into bank reserves where it actually doesn't do very much. So very early on, in QE, not long after the financial crisis, the Bank of England realised that damaged banks weren't lending, um, and throwing, giving them additional money in the form of reserves wasn't making them lending wasn't making them lend, um, and so it decided to buy bonds from investors rather than from banks. Now, when that happens, the new investor isn't a bank, so they have they're given money, they, so the money. That the government, that the central bank creates, goes into their deposit accounts um, at a bank. So the bank also has increased bank reserves as well. But it's the money that goes into their deposit account that matters because what the investor is then meant to do with it is spend it. Um, mm-hmm. In practice, what happens is investors spend it on other financial assets because your average investor that they're buying that central bank is buying assets from um, is pretty rich um, and is quite possibly an institutional investor whose job is to manage the portfolios of assets. Um, and so what they will do is go and buy other assets. Now, this is actually partly the point, is to encourage in- institutional investors particularly to shift their portfolios towards different assets, away from government debt and towards um, corporate debt and equities, the idea being to make it easier and cheaper for um, companies to borrow to invest so that was the idea okay i see
0: so 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 if i could just sort of uh summarize this um very quickly so we have the financial crisis banks won't lend to each other the central bank says time for us to effectively create new money by buying uh government bonds that are held by these banks the banks will then have more cash and they will be more willing to lend to each other they tried that It didn't really work so well because the banks still didn't lend to each other. So then they thought, okay, there are all of these corporations out there, private investors, institutional investors, pension funds, whatever it may be, who own government debt, will buy the government debt from them. They will then have some spare cash, and hopefully they'll invest that in other sectors of the economy. And the idea was that this would uh, provide lots of liquidity for people and bring back their confidence and make them invest in different projects. And that would eventually come along and benefit the whole economy. But what actually happened was a lot of these institutional investors didn't invest in things that, um, so to speak, would trickle down from financial markets into the lives of ordinary people. But instead, they bought assets and asset prices were inflated more. And this is why we have, for example, when the Bank of England looked back at its uh, purchases of of bonds, and I think the first rounds of QE were hundreds of billions of of pounds that were created in in the purchases of these bonds, they, they found that the effect was to disproportionately... Benefit wealthy people because wealthy people, of course, disproportionately hold assets. And so, if what your program of uh, injecting money into the markets is doing is inflating asset prices, then it's benefiting people who hold assets more than people who don't. Is that a fair summary of, of sort of the first rounds of QE?
1: I think that is a fair summary, and it is something pretty much the central banks have admitted that QE does um, does benefit those who hold assets, who are of course disproportionately rich people. Um, It also, um, the the counter-side to that is also, though, that the returns, the yields on assets fall. Um, So anybody who wants um, a good return on their assets, um, like a pensioner, um, actually suffers, um, actually has to take more risk to do it. And one of the adverse effects of QE has been to um, force people who are saving for retirement to take uh, to take more risks, to have things in their portfolios that are riskier, just in order to get decent uh, a decent income. Uh, it's been a long running problem, and it, it, it for you might say, well, you know, there are bigger problems than that. And I've said that, that some of my heart bleeds. I'm not very sorry about you suffering from that very low interest rates. Um, I care more about people losing their jobs and people losing their homes. But it is a matter of concern that people who had relied on Um, a portfolio delivering a return of of, of, uh, seven or eight percent are suddenly getting returns of two or three percent and and it's not enough for them to live on. Um...
0: So one a couple of things that I wanted to ask about really is that this this whole process is so mystifying to people from the outside and they they hear that uh, central banks are printing trillions of dollars and these things are going to investors and it's sort of that is in a way that's kind of how it's happening but it's a lot more indirect than that um one one counter argument that you get when you advance this case is people say QE is described as a loan because the central bank is purchasing an asset corporate and government debt which presumably it could then sell again and then um your your loan has sort of been repaid but if, if the central bank's balance sheet always increases as I think has been the case for the Bank of England and for the Federal Reserve in the U.S., where they're buying more and more debt and never selling it back, is—is is it really a loan if the if the capital doesn't have to be repaid? Uh, it's just one of these kind of Jedi mind trick things, isn't it? Whereby... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: whereby the, the, the whole the central banks have been at pains to say we could sell this back. And everybody's going yeah, really. And, and I would actually, love someone
0: to loan me a trillion dollars with no obligation to pay it back.
1: Well, of course, of course the UK government used to issue perpetual debt. Um, mm-hmm. we, we actually, we actually paid, we actually paid some of it off in 2014 because <laughs> <laughs> it was expensive. Because it had been issued during the Napoleonic Wars, at an interest rate of about five percent. interest no, two hundred
0: years is not perpetual, is it?
1: Uh, well, I could have gone on forever. They had no obligation <laughs> to call it, and um, they only did so because it was expensive. Well, because interest rates had fallen so much, it was an expensive way uh, mm-hmm. of financing the government. So they called it and refinanced it a, 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 over a much shorter time uh, with with a maturity date. So it's not perpetual anymore. Um, at a lower interest rate. I mean, <laughs> but you know, had they not done so, we would still have some perpetual debt. Um, <laughs> You might ask yourself, why on earth would anybody pay a government perpetual debt, but it used to be quite a good way of investing your money and what you wanted was a return because it was a guaranteed return it was fixed interest rate of of five percent or something um and and so people did it was a, a you know a, 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 certainly in the eighteenth uh, nineteenth centuries it was a good way of investing your money uh, a, a safe ass, safe asset was in a form of government debt known as a console, which was essentially a perpetual loan but that's not what central banks have bought well central banks have bought things with with maturity dates um, and the, and they do mature, and at the moment when certainly in Engl- in Britain um, when the bonds that it, the, the Bank of England has bought mature, it buys some more so that it's maintaining the same um, value of bonds on its um balance sheet. Uh, when the Fed started unwinding its balance sheet in 2017, it did so by not reinvesting. So as the bonds matured, it didn't replace them and um, and its balance sheet therefore shrank. So, you, so in that sense, what the Fed did at that time is evidence that QE can be unwound. The government effectively did have to repay that money. Mm-hmm. Um, and this but, is the
0: concern, isn't it, is okay. that... We, we've had rounds of QE. It was initially an emergency measure after the financial crisis, but actually we've had to have continual rounds of it since. I think we had one in 2010, one after Brexit, and then another huge one after coronavirus, which we'll get to shortly. Um, but but it can be unwound then, providing uh, the economy is is booming and the central bank makes the decision to stop reinvesting in this government bonds.
1: Yes, bond. absolutely. In fact, um, Andrew Bailey, who's the current governor of the Bank of England, said um, very recently that, um, you know, if and when the government returns to the kind of health that we would like to see, he would consider reducing the Bank of England's balance sheet before raising interest rates, which is the opposite of what the Fed did, because the Fed started to raise interest rates first and then stopped reinvesting bonds. But, um, yeah, what they're doing is is they are... um, Reducing the, the, their asset holdings, not by selling the assets, but by allowing them to mature, which means they're redeemed, they're repaid. Um, and, I think, and because of that, I think that the messaging around QE, there are still people saying, who are saying, oh, it'll never be repaid. Um, they'll just print and print and print forever. And I point to the two years that the Fed was unwinding its balance sheet and saying, well, they actually did repay a lot of it. The Fed reduced its balance sheet by nearly half.
0: But you see, this is this is quite interesting because I, I certainly, you know, insofar as I follow US politics, um, I know that Donald Trump is constantly going on at the Federal Reserve in the idea that the Federal Reserve's job is to sort of prop up his economy and boost his re-election chances and so on. And this was happening before any of the coronavirus stuff hit, which has obviously put us into a completely new paradigm. But he was always going on at them to slash interest rates and presumably wouldn't have minded QE again. So So there's this question of to what extent the government and the central bank sh- should should work together or to what extent they are have quite an antagonistic relationship. Could, could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's actually quite a problem. Um, I mean, there are so many examples of um, governments um, really trying to um, tell their central banks what to do. So Donald Trump said a number of times that he thinks that American interest rates should be lower for example. Now actually this was uh, he started saying it while the Fed was raising rates and I actually agreed with him. I actually thought <laughs> that the Fed was, was raising interest rates too fast and unwinding its 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 balance sheet too fast and it was all going to end in tears. And then in September last year it did end in tears. And I, I thought I mean it actually found it quite uncomfortable actually agreeing with, with, with Donald Trump really. But um Well even a
0: stock clock is right twice a day, don't worry about it too much. <laughs>
1: But, but there are other examples, I and mean, it is a worry. Uh, a, 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 a central bank that is actively buying its own government's bonds, in a way, is having to cooperate perhaps more closely with that with that government than some people are comfortable with. Um, there are people who want um, central banks to be sort of fenced around by rules and by legislation that prevents them from doing that. I mean, I think we've seen this in Europe with the ECB, whereby the ECB's QE has been challenged um, legally, uh, challenged in the courts um, by Germany um, because they have this absolute prohibition on central bank financing of governments. And uh, the, um, some people in Germany thought that QE um, breaks that prohibition um it, it it's we're going this is going to come back and to haunt us um over the ecb's most recent interventions as well um i am not myself convinced that um having these kind of prohibitions is necessarily helpful um because if you have a government that is so irresponsible as to demand that its central bank finance profligate lending the profligate um spending on and just on
0: prints banks. endless money for them to pay and their expenses money
1: for them to to pay their cronies and disappear off into their bank accounts and what have you um then your central bank is going to be you know your whole um whole um government infrastructure is a basket case anyway like if you have an independent central bank they might be able to keep that can credibly resist that you might be able to keep the show on the road for a while um but no government institution, the central bank is a government institution um is ultimately totally immune to to corruption. If you have um a government that is determined to seize control of all arms of the state and bend them to its purposes, the central bank can be corrupted. and that's not, but that doesn't mean that we should necessarily say well because of that there's no point in having an independent central bank i think having a central bank at arm's length from from the financing of government isn't a bad idea um and, and I think it can work very well. Um, it, it, there, there is sometimes this question about whether the central bank, even though it's sort of notionally independent, actually still has to do what the government wants simply because it hasn't got any choice because it's responsible for the economy. We saw that particularly, I think, during the coalition years when you know we had a government that was hell-bent on making really very, very deep um, cuts to government expenditure. And there were tax rises as well. Um, particularly to energy, um, household energy bills, corporate energy bills and to and VAT, of course, um, at a time when the economy um, was just heading off a cliff again because the, because the eurozone crisis was just starting. And um, there is a question about whether the Bank of England actually had to loosen monetary policy because of the tight fiscal stance of the government and whether even um, George Osborne constructed his fiscal policy in the expectation that the bank of england had his back um in terms of keeping the economy afloat while he um trashed government finances
0: so the Um, government is pulling one way and the central bank is sort of expected to pull back because people i mean and and the point that you make i suppose is that when there's a crisis people look to the central bank to do something as we saw in the last year
1: Yeah, absolutely. We we have come to expect that the central bank it will will do will prop up the economy, and we we've been in that mode for ten years, and not just in Britain; it's been everywhere that everybody's looked mm-hmm. at their central banks to to keep the show on the road, while they uh, while the government spends all its time cutting back in order to get deficits under control, rather than doing what is what it, the economy and 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 its citizens need. Um, and if the present crisis forces us to to turn away from that incredibly dysfunctional way of doing things then then, you know bring it on um we still do have a tendency to look to the central bank to say okay what are you going to do about the economic mess we're in and i think increasingly people it's beginning to dawn on people that the present crisis is so enormous and central banks have so little room for manoeuvre after um backstopping um, fiscal austerity for the last 10 years um that now the, it is governments that need to step up that um, and that central bank's role now is becoming backstopping governments to enable them to do whatever it takes to um, get their economies moving and support their citizens, which is, in my view, more where it should be, really.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. You can find our guest today, Frances Coppola, on Twitter at Frances Coppola, and you can find her blog on finance and economics at Coppola Comment, complete with some recent thoughts on how to respond to the current economic downturn, and I urge you to give it a read, not only for that, but also for the historical debates about QE and discussion of the latest financial news. You can find us online at physicspodcast.com, where you'll find the contact form. You can get in touch there, any comments, questions, concerns, topics you'd like to see us cover, topics you wouldn't like to see us cover. We're open to talking about all kinds of subjects on this show, as I'm sure you're appreciating you can get in touch with us there and I I aim to respond to everyone who who gets in touch via that contact form. Other things that you can do via the website, there's the Patreon where you can subscribe for no money initially, but some small number of dollars uh, once we release the next bonus episode. You'll be able to access six bonus episodes if you subscribe to us on Patreon, so you could join the uh, dozen or so people who've already done that. You can donate to the show on PayPal if you want to give us a tip to support us in our work and help me pay for the Libsyn fees and all that sort of thing. And one of the best things, of course, you can do to the show if you don't want to support it financially is definitely to tell as many people who might be interested in the show about it. Review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You, you know all the stuff. You've listened to plenty of podcasts. You know the kind of things that podcasters would like you to do. You can also follow us on Twitter, Physics Pod, and Facebook page is Physical Attraction. And the Science Podcasts group, by the way, is up there on Facebook as well. Um, you can find all sorts of stuff about science podcasts there. Um, Most of the people there are fellow science podcasters, so if you're looking for something new to listen to, that might be a good place to do it. Until next time then, take care.